your work life, all of our work lives. Welcome to Work with Marty Nemco. I've got somebody on the line who's going to give me a hard time about a number of things, mainly what we've talked, what I've promoted for this week, which is reinventing education. We're going to do one of our switch sides in the middle debate where I take one side for the first half of the debate and then switch. Who is this co-conspirator? Who is this debating partner? My wife, Dr. Barbara Nemco, Napa County Superintendent of Schools, seven national awards, blah, 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 blah. Barbara, Barbara, welcome. So, okay, but before we get to the main topic, the reinventing of education, this is back to school time after all, Uh, reinventing of education will do K-12, but then we're also going to do reinventing higher ed, especially with a career focus since this show focuses on career. But first, this is the center of vacation time. And I, one of the publications I tend to look at a lot is Quartz, and a particular headline caught my eye. Going, and I'm going to, so I'm going to read this. It's going to take about two minutes. I'm going to read it, and then you can tell me whether you agree, disagree, uh, amplify, whatever, okay? The title is Going on Vacation Won't Cure Your Burnout. Ah, vacation. A whole week into, in which to swim, sleep, lounge around with your paperback of choice, and recharge from your insanely demanding job. Surely you'll come back to work bursting with positive energy, ready to dive back into 12-hour workdays, unreasonable deadlines, an exploding email inbox, and the constant sinking sensation that you are so hopelessly behind that an important person must already be on their way to come and yell at you. But a 2018 American Psychological Association survey of more than 1,500 workers in the U.S., two-thirds of the respondents said that the mental health benefits of vacation had disappeared within a few days. 49% of people surveyed said that they returned to a heavier-than-usual workload after their holiday, a surefire way to extinguishing lingering feelings of joy and serenity. As most people realize, taking vacation can be punishing, with a frenetic work of lead-up as you try to tie up loose ends, and another week of double duty while you catch up on the work you missed while still processing the incoming barrage. There's another problem with trying to cram a year's worth of your built-up need for reflection and relaxation into a limited window of time. Instead, the research shows that you have to build in small, and they can be very small, breaks during your day and then after work hours, says Paula Davis-Lack, an organizational consultant who focuses on stress, burnout, and resilience. That means not just carving out 30 minutes for a proper lunch break rather than partaking in the classic sad desk salad, but remembering to get up from your desk throughout the day. Davis-Lack tells Fast Company that she recommends a break of 5 to 10 minutes every 90 to 120 minutes of work. I would even say more, and I'm no slacker. I would say you've got it because sitting is the new smoking. You really should take 5 to 10 minutes each hour, and in between... A few second deep breaths of stretch breaks, but this notion of vacation being restorative, not so sure. Barbara Nemco, your reactions? Well, I totally disagree that you um, come back and the benefit is gone in a few days. I would say it's gone in about half hour. Wow, okay. I didn't expect you to say that. Continue. 
Because you're a big vacation fan. I mean, you're Miss Queen of eight days, seven night Hawaii lying on beach. But it well, first of all, to say that is disingenuous. Because when was the last time I did that? Well, you've you've always won. I mean, over the many years yes, we've been together, we've to, done it. We've done we it a number of times. It, and part of the reason okay. that um, I have not pushed harder to do it is because when well, two things, of course, grandchildren. Then that's the only place you want to go. But when you're away for a week, just one week, mm-hmm. it's nightmarish when you come back, and it's not even nightmarish. From when you get back into the office, you mm-hmm. come home and people want to stretch the vacation to the last minute. Mm-hmm. So you come home and if the plane is delayed or something mm-hmm. goes wrong, you get home late at night. Mm-hmm. And now you have suitcases to unpack. So you can't do that because there's no time because you have to go to sleep because you have to get up to go to work. And you may not have the right clean clothes ready because maybe what you want is where is in your suitcase and it's dirty. And now their suitcases are in the way, and you jump into bed to try and go to sleep, and you get up, and there's no food in the house for breakfast, and maybe there's no coffee, or the milk went bad. So you're in a bad mood before you even get to the office, and then everything is just stacked up, stacked up, stacked up. And, of course, these days on a vacation, you're still not totally relaxed, because you can be found on email or uh, messages or telephone. So if something really bad happens, you know about it anyway. And if it's only moderately bad, then you come back and it's gotten worse in the three days that you were gone. So it's a nightmare coming back. You know, after all these years together, you still managed to surprise me. So, okay, let's just, uh, that was a great, I thought it was a terrific answer, amplification rather than agreement or disagreement. Awesome. Let's now turn to the main topic. We're going to be talking about how to reinvent, not reform, but reinvent education. We've been reforming, We're tweaking done with around. Vacation? Yeah, that's it. This was just a quickie. We have so much to cover on this education thing, and I've been promoing the education thing. Is there more do you want to say about the vacation thing? You can. Oh, well, I find that it's not only on the work front, it's the home front. I can't stand it. I come back and there's mail and there's there's newspapers and things to catch up on. And I, it takes me a week and a half to catch up from four days out of the office. I couldn't agree more. Even when we go on our little one-day vacations, like we go to Carmel, you know, you're gone for 12 hours, 14 hours, and then you come back and there's already a lot of stuff that's got to get done before the next day of work. Well, but with work, it's so much worse because if you, you, you plan this in advance... There's a ton of stuff that you have to get ready because you won't be there to do. Precisely. There are deadlines and things, and so you're working twice as hard, and then you're kind of frenetic. But the other thing I want to say about the small breaks, I have discovered mm-hmm. the coolest thing to do mm. as a, a break in your day. Mm. And it seems it works every day. Mm. Um, if you're using your cell phone, when you get a call, put your headphones in and walk. I walk around our boardroom on the days that there's nobody in there. And that walking makes the phone call so much less stressful Mm -hmm. because I'm moving. Physically, I feel better. The other day I had a call, and it was a long, stressful one. Mm -hmm. And I clocked 37 minutes of exercise, 2.74 miles, just walking around the boardroom. And I don't go just one direction. I zig and zag in between the tables, and I go, I walk in many different patterns and ways. And 
you feel that you've accomplished something that's good for you, not just sitting in your chair feeling stressed by whatever the difficult conversation is. And this can work for conversations with anybody, uh, friends, relatives, at home, but just moving around is a great thing. You know, I often, as you, those of you listen to the show and hear it when Barbara's on, I often will disagree or amplify, but I can't beat that. I think that's just terrific. And uh, it, would be, it would be unfair to you for me to try to top that, even though I might try, you know, by talking about, well, you know, it's only a flat surface and you're really not going to get enough exit. But no, I think you just, that was really great. And so let's now turn to education with oh. your permission. Okay. Um, so we have for decades been reforming education. And the achievement gap remains as wide as ever, which frustrates and quells the hope, especially for the multi-generational poor that have been told that education is the path out. And on the other end of the continuum, parents of bright kids often have to choose between two bad options, shortchanging their child by having them in a public school that tends to be aimed at low achievers or incurring the crushing cost of private school, if they can afford it. How to deal with both ends the bright and the slow, I'm going to make a proposition, as in a debate, and uh, I, after I make that proposition, you're going to argue against it, and then I'm going to argue against it, and then we'll, we'll keep going, we'll kind of make sure we both take both sides on the issue, and then we'll turn to do the same thing for higher ed. How's that sound? Okay. So here's the proposition. In preparing for the show, but I've also written widely about this, and this is not the name drug, it's just that it, it's gotten a lot of attention. I wrote about this in Time. I wrote about this in Washington Post. I wrote about this in Psychology Today. I didn't call it, called it super school, so we'll just call it that. In super school, classes would still meet in person, except that starting even in elementary school, for each subject, each especially academic subject, each student would get a world-class instructor online. World-class is defined by fascinating, resulting in above average, much above average growth in students, and they would be individually paced lessons, and they'd be adapted. There could be, for one kid, it might be more auditory. Another kid, it might be more visual. So that, you know, because this could be developed once for the entire nation or even more, 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 you know, across the world, the cost per student would be amortized across those zillion students, and therefore the cost would be minimal. And then um, the learning, every, you know, each little learning module would be tested, and that would all be recorded, eliminating the need for four days of testing, uh, which, by the way, I know is one of your ideas. You wrote about that in the Wall Street Journal. Um, so I totally agree with that. If we're using online teaching that is totally individualized with testing each module and then periodic tests somewhere, you know, after every two weeks or whatever, you're getting both moment-by-moment -moment testing with each item, but you're also getting periodic testing to see how much is learned over a longer period of time. But there would be <clears throat> a live teacher in each class to address concerns and to ensure good classroom behavior, and also, frankly, because it'll get much more support from the teachers' union if they're not afraid that the, uh, all these teaching jobs are going to get cut. But extracurricular activities would remain as they are in current schools. That's the proposition. Now, I'd like you to uh, uh, argue against it. Well, fundamentally, I think part of the reason education is 
seen so poorly is because we judge it by the wrong things. The craziness of these tests that too often test esoterica that nobody's ever going to use and or having a curriculum made up of so much stuff that is irrelevant to most people's lives. And then to judge schools by the fact that kids score a certain way on a written test, frequently a bubble test where you're going to choose a, an answer, that's not part of the real world. That doesn't, and you're that's not, arguing, not the way we should be judging schools. But you're not arguing against what I proposed. That, no, well, I'm not, but, but I, fundamentally, that's the first big thing. That's the biggest problem. So the curricular thing. So how would you, if you were reinventing the, uh, the elementary school curriculum, what would you take away? It's very, everybody always adds on to the curriculum. Well, let's add drug education. Let's add bullying education. Let's, let's add ethics. Let's, add, let's, let's you know, look at fake news. What, what would you take away from the curriculum, and what would you add to the elementary school curriculum? I would take all the standards that we have. and Standards, I by would... the way, for those of you not part of the... There's this thing called the Common Core Curriculum that has these various objectives, a zillion of them, a mountain of these objectives. Continue, Barb. I would gather together a group of people who are professionals in various fields, some with advanced degrees, some with less advanced degrees, and I would have them go through all of the standards and all the ones that we rarely use, that only a few people use. Engineers may use them, but that doesn't mean that everybody uses them. Like quadratic them. equations. I'd get rid of those. Yeah. I'd just get rid of those. And what would you replace them with? Well, some of the stuff that you talked about really is important, how to determine what's fake news and bullying. Those are much mm -hmm. more important mm -hmm. than some of these simultaneous equations or whether two trains that leave different stations at different times, right. when do they cross in Minneapolis? Right. Um, those things are important, but we don't test those. So, so when we report on schools and we report on the achievement gap, those things are not included, even though to me they are more important. So I would, and part of the reason for this is in our push for um, equality and the, what we've spent the last 30 years doing is insisting that every kid needs to go to a four-year college, the colleges use that academic stuff as a way of determining who they're going to take in and who they're not. So, therefore, you had to give it to everybody to make sure that everybody had an equal chance of being accepted to a four-year college. But if we could put that aside, too, because now in today's era, having a four-year college degree does not guarantee you that great lifetime job Far that pays a it. good salary. Yep. And what, what was... The it's surprising in that you, I agree with everything you just said, but I noted when you were describing who should review the curriculum, you said with people with PhDs, people with lesser degrees. What about people who don't have degrees? There are yeah, plain people. Absolutely. Yes, exactly. Absolutely. All kinds of people. Right. Let me make some more arguments against it, okay? And then you make arguments for what I propose, you know, this heavily online, individualized education with these dream teachers. First of all, 
it's less human, especially in elementary school. Should we, we already complain about kids spending too much time in front of a screen. Well, here they're going to be spending even more time. Instead of having Mrs. Johnson, they're going to, they're going to have the screen professor. Um, and also, the truth is, even if you, you know, as I said, even if you have teachers in there to supplement that, the union is going to be terrified that eventually that could be, they could be eliminated in a budget cut or replaced with paraprofessionals. So the unions would fight it, and the unions are very powerful. So um, that's a problem. Also, parents will object because it's quite radical. You know, parents object when they, when they close one school that's in the kid has to go another four miles to get to his school. Imagine now, instead of having the nice little Mrs. Johnson all day, you've got Mrs. Johnson kind of walking around the room as the kids are looking at the screens. The parents, many parents are going to scream. So those are the anti-arguments. You want to counter those? Well, I, I'm thinking that by the time we get to something like this, it's in the future, we'll have holograms walking around the room teaching. Well, then the I unions will really object because then there's really no live teacher. Well, there, there will always have to be a live teacher in the room. You need that for security. You have to have a, a body in the room. I think that's right. But it could be a paraprofessional, and the unions, the teachers' union would absolutely... No, it can't be a paraprofessional okay. because the teachers are going to have... The, whoever's in the room is going to have to answer the live questions that come up, and a paraprofessional may not be All right, fair the enough. topic that you're doing. Fair enough. I, I have always agreed with the idea that we ought to have the best teachers in the United States tape, videotape, um, virtual reality do, however you want to do it, um, teach those lessons so that every kid would get the best instruction in the world. But you don't, you're not going to do this all day, every day. That would be awful. Kids would be sitting all the time mm-hmm. and looking mm-hmm. at screens. And I don't think, after a while, trust me, the best lesson in the world will be awfully boring. It's like if you stare at television right. for six hours a day, right. it doesn't matter what the show is. It, right. it has lost its luster. Right. So, But for certainly for some of the more difficult uh, concepts to teach, it would be nice if there is a competition and you have the very best teachers recording those lessons. And maybe it isn't even necessarily that the kids are going to watch the screen to do it, but what if the teachers got to see those lessons taught by these right. very proficient teachers, and then they could teach it in that way so that you don't have teachers who are either making it up by themselves or they saw somebody teach it and they teach it that way, but it wasn't the best way to do it. I think that would be a very powerful assist to making school more engaging. The other part is we've got to get kids out into the real world a whole lot more and a whole lot earlier. That certainly would be true in the high schools. You know, it's particular subjects. I, you know, I was never a bad student. I, I couldn't behave. I, was not, I couldn't sit in my seat. But I, I certainly learned very well until I got to ninth grade algebra. And like many kids, I really struggled. Me too. Right. Funny, and we, isn't it? And neither of us are stupid, and yet we also, because people who tend to go into math are less verbal, and being an effective teacher requires excellent verbal skills. So on average, you've got a perfect storm of a difficult subject that is algebra, highly abstract for a ninth grader, along with a pool of teachers who are not the best able to be teaching that well. So there is the perfect sub, and it's considered the gateway to to, uh, to professional employment in the in STEM, in science, technology, engineering, and math. So 
if there was ever a subject that would be perfectly suited to finding the most transformational, entertaining, and effective algebra teachers, maybe even three or four of them, who would divide up the algebra curriculum, and they would each teach their one quarter of the course that they teach the best and they love the most, and have every kid from Maine to, to New Mexico... Uh, getting those teachers interactively with little modules where they get tested on these cute little things, and it could be gamified with badges and rewards and, and, and animations, that would be transformative in a way that no education reform has. Do you buy that? Yep. I do. Okay. You're listening to work with Marty Nemco and Barbara Nemco. This is a special back-to-school show. And, you know, because the show focuses on career, we're going to focus mainly on higher ed. But we'd be remiss if we were talking about back-to-school education and we didn't talk about, you know, K-12. But now, let us turn to higher ed, which, of course, is... uh, you know, even though, yes, we've all heard of people who uh, succeed dropping out of high school and getting great careers, in general, the uh, college degree is, is kind of the hunting license for professional-level employment. I want to set the stage for this switch sides in the middle debate between Barbara Nemco and me, Marty Nemco, by reading you an excerpt from an article called Exposing the Moral Flaws of Our Higher Education System by George Leaf. He is the Director of Editorial Content at the Martin Center for Educational Renewal. Many, if not most professors and higher education leaders, enjoy pontificating about their high-minded ideals in contrast with the grubby, self-interested world outside of academia. What few people have done is to turn the lens around and ask about the morals of those professors and leaders. Are they, in fact, paragons of virtue? Or could it be that their own actions are suffused, not with concern for students or society, but with their own welfare? In the recent book, Cracks in the Ivory Tower, authors Jason Brennan and Philip Magnes explore these questions and find higher education to be, quote, a moral mess, end quote. They write... From a business ethics standpoint, the average university makes Enron look pretty good. Universities' problems are deep and fundamental. Most academic marketing is semi-fraudulent. Grading is largely nonsense. Students don't study or learn much. Students cheat frequently. Liberal arts education fails because it presumes a false theory of learning. Professors and administrators waste students' money and time in order to line their own pockets, everyone engaging in self-righteous moral grandstanding to disguise their selfish cronyism, and so on. Students cheat a lot, reflecting their desire for good grades with minimal effort rather than for learning. If professors wanted to crack down on cheating, there's a lot they could do. But they usually do little to combat cheating because, again, it isn't in their interest to do so. If some students get higher grades than they deserve, that doesn't hurt the professor. Whereas changing the way he or she teaches would involve personal costs. That doesn't make them bad people. They're just responding to the system's incentives. Cracks in the Ivory Tower is the second book within the, just the last year that exposes unflattering truths about American higher education. Brian Kaplan's The Case Against Education made a powerful argument that most of the apparent benefit that students derive from college is not in augmented skills and knowledge, but just from the signaling effects of degrees. And now, Brennan and Magnus have shown that much of the conduct by college leaders that's portrayed as righteous concern for students and society is actually done out of selfish motives. Both are crucial books, 
That low, rumbling sound you hear may be the tremors that break apart the foundations of our expensive yet ineffectual higher education system. Okay, pretty strong indictment. Before we get to now this kind of setting the stage for this debate. So, in the same way as I developed something that I called super schools, I'm now going to create, I'm going to present very briefly something I call super college. And then you can, I'd like you to rip it apart to the extent you can or amplify whatever. And then we'll keep, we'll go back and forth until we've kind of reached a reasonable level for radio. Uh, and then we'll go to the phones and get people's uh, take on the matter. So, super college would consist of online education much improved. Not those boring lectures that are basically just regular lectures translated online, but interactive video, simulation-centric, taught by the world-class transformational and more practical and career preparatory instructors, except in Ph.D. programs because Ph.D. programs are designed to train students for a career in research. Individual modules, not full semester courses. Some could be very short, an hour or two. Others could be very long, a year long, which, if a student wants a degree, would be recorded by the U.S. government and a degree granted when sufficient courses are completed. Extracurricular activities would be provided by local resources, a city's swimming pool and soccer fields, and so on. No campus. The result? Higher education that would seem to do the impossible. Much improved learning at much lower cost. Barbara Nemco, rip it apart. It's hard because I think that's kind of a direction that we're moving in right now. Certainly, a lot of people are doing a lot of online college, a lot of online graduate Most school. students still are, go, still are going, you know, most parents are still frantically trying to get their kid into Harvard, Stanford, and if not, UC Davis or whatever. So That's it's, true. It's so still, uh, you when know, you talk about what are the moral flaws, uh, I spent a number of years on a college campus doing evaluations of programs for the California Department of Education, right. and we just happened to be housed there because right. that's one of the things that they do. They contract with the university to do the research and evaluation. Right. And the standard joke was that most professors would kill for a window in their office or an extra 10 square feet of space. Um, they typically are wanting to spend most of their time on research because that's what gets you promoted, and promotion means more money. And this wasn't like at Berkeley or Stanford. It's just, I won't mention the school because there's no reason for you to embarrass it's them. It's not. But it's a, it's a far less selective school, uh, you know, which is... But a very know, good school. But you would think it would be teaching-centric, but even at this place, no. it, is, so, you know, it is completely research-centric. And most of the time is spent either on the research or at committee meetings. Right. With some office hours for students. Two, two hours a week. That says, that says a lot right there. The least amount of time appeared to be preparing to teach the classes. Right. And especially classes for undergraduates, because it seemed like nobody wanted to teach those. Right. Most of the professors have some area that they're very interested in and that they've been able to do a lot of publication about, and that's what they want to do, and um, it makes perfect sense. That satisfies their self-interest to get recognition for something that they know and care about, 
and that's where they're going to put their energy. I'll, and then you get a raise, too. I'll never forget one of those professors that you taught with, that you were there with, who uh, her specialty was the daylight, day, day length factors in marigold cultivation. Right? Now. A topic we all need to know yeah, a lot about. Yeah, that may be very, you know, but that may be very important if you are in the marigold industry. But undergraduates, mm-hmm. you know, they, the, these researchers, these professors rationalize that, oh, being involved in the cutting edge is what really helps students grow. BS. The, the, what helps students grow is, is not some esoteric cutting edge, but it's understanding and applying the basics in a practical context that they would use. So even if they were agriculture majors, it might be far wiser for them to be studying different ways of doing experimental testings as to which crops are better, not the day-length day uh, patterns in marigolds. Um, but, the, you know, the university, we cow to them because, oh, they're professors. They have PhDs. When we think about somebody who's got a lofty uh, position, it's college president. But in the end, you know, what I propose, again, is getting these world-class instructors available online in interactive, immersive, simulation-based instruction. Who could argue? I mean, I happen to know this professor, this, this woman, and she's this not that care matters that she's frumpy, but her intellectual style is frumpy. She's not crisp. She's not charismatic. And yet undergraduates are forced to take classes with her instead of a world class if somebody wanted to take botany. Some, there must be, certainly, one or two or three amazing transformative botany instructors that's, you know, whether at Iowa State or at the University of Cornwall in England. Who knows? But having all students being able to take that in an interactive, immersive, ongoing assessment model that's, that's with simulations you couldn't do in real life seems unarguable. But I want to make uh, the argument against I agree. Against and it. then okay. this article was called Exposing the Moral Flaws in Our Higher Education System. Right. And another one of those moral flaws is when university professors get contracts to do whatever, they typically will hire their low-paid mm-hmm. assistants, student assistants, to do the work. Slaves. And that, that would be fine if they really were um, spending a great deal of time guiding the right. student in how you do this kind of work right. and helping them with the writing. But typically, they let the student do the whole thing, and then the they submit work. it under their name because they got the contract, so they get the credit for their evaluation. Oh, no. They, they, give, they, they throw them a, a bone that doesn't hurt them at all. They make them a junior author. It doesn't hurt the, doesn't hurt the professor at all to have the graduate student on the, on the, as the, the sixth author. Uh, and so what, that, can, that coerces the student to work for little or no money to quote their name on an article as though that's going to transform their, that's going to catapult their career. But I want to I ridicule, not ridicule, I want to take the other side. Like I said, I like taking both sides of debate. So the problem with what I've described, this, this heavily online education much improved, is that it requires, all online education requires people to be a self-starter. And study after study shows that online education only has a 10 or 15% completion rate. And so, you know, you're going to be consigning large percentages of students to non-completion. And because there is, you know, we are human beings. And while rationally it may make sense to sit in front of the computer, human beings seem to derive more motivation by 
uh, having a professor that they feel accountable to who's in that room or their fellow students. They like to socialize. They like to flirt. They like to, to, to join, you know, they like to get out of their house and, and get to, uh, you know, to a beautiful campus, even though it's costing them a fortune. Um, and, um, you know, also, especially for undergraduates, college has always is been, is, has, is the halfway house between the protection of home and the independence of adulthood. You know, without a college campus, and where I'm saying, yeah, yeah, the kids can use a swimming pool in the community or whatever, you know, there are very few who are going to avail themselves of that. Being in a dorm together, being, having a student newspaper, having a student radio station. I'm a radio guy. I love radio. You know, all those things are, are going to be lost, and yet many students will say they've gained more from those extracurricular activities, being in student government, being in student newspaper, being in student radio or TV station, uh, being an activist, you know, pr- protesting, um, being on the student faculty senate than, than, you know, than could be possible in this, uh, in this brave new world of uh, online education, even if the instruction is very practical, and that the U.S. government is what's certifying, therefore the, the universities wouldn't be holding that uh, a diploma over their head and charging a fortune for it. So there really is another side. What's your reaction to that? I completely agree. I've seen this with myself. We are um, we're piloting an app for adults who want to learn or improve their English skills because there are 33 million Americans in this country who don't speak English. Mm-hmm. So it's an app. Because I'm working with adults in the community and organizations in the community to make this available to people who need it, I thought I needed to use it too, just so that I can understand what they're going through, what the problems mm-hmm, are. Mm-hmm. And I chose the pre-algebra right, okay. class right. because I, I can read and write pretty well. I know the alphabet. Um, I'm an excellent reader. But pre-algebra was killer. Like you said, right. by the time I got to ninth grade algebra, I was absolutely amazed at how difficult it was and why I couldn't understand it. And so I'm doing this app, and when I make myself get around to it, it's kind of fun because it's gamified, and if you get it right, bells and whistles happen, and it congratulates you, and it's motivating in the way that kids like to play video games. Mm -hmm. But because I have to be, as you said, a Mm self-starter, Somehow there's never time for me to get my phone and play the game, Mm -hmm. even though it would only be 10 minutes. Mm -hmm. It doesn't happen. And so what college does is it provides that structure. So Monday, Wednesday, Friday, you have to show up at 9 o'clock, and this is the class you have, and this is where it is, and you don't get to roll over in bed. And Well, I mean, obviously you can, but it's Mm -hmm. harder to roll over in bed and turn the alarm off when you know that there is this 9 o'clock class you're supposed to be at, then it's just you were going to get up and sit down at your computer and look at this lesson in whatever the subject was. So, yes, and of course, the social part is enormous. Uh, But that's also why people like to go to work in an office, because there is a social component. For many people. You know, a spoonful of sugar, that's what it's like. makes the medicine go down. Okay, this might be a good time. Let's, um, dear listeners, we have been um, doing a kind of a debate of both sides of uh, a, 
um, both in K-12 and uh, college. And by the way, let's, I should mention that there's certainly career implications for this. How, you know, study after study shows that even students who are among the 60% who graduate within 60 years and 40, within six years and 40% don't, the amount of growth in critical thinking and writing, let alone being workplace ready, is frightfully low. Um, and so what I've proposed here in terms of this super college would be also a change in curriculum where there'd be much more emphasis on critical thinking, conflict resolution, entrepreneurship, non-profit entrepreneurship, social uh, governance of, uh, and regulation, you know, real balance of, across the political spectrum from quite liberal to quite conservative so that it would be really the full marketplace of ideas. Uh, and it wouldn't have to be a degree. Students could do on a just-in-time basis. They could learn. They could say, I'm really motivated right now to learn more about socialism in light of uh, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren and Pete Buttigieg. Um, and I want to learn. I want to understand the pros and cons of socialism and Marxism. Um, you're motivated. You're going to be much more likely to learn something if instead of being just motivated by, the, by a grade and by a degree, you're taking what you want. And if the U.S. government is archiving them, over time, you, you know, if you want to really just get out there, you may get to do it in four or five years. But you may say, you know what, I want to learn what I want to learn in just-in-time basis. In any case, if you have any comments about our attempts to reinvent education, especially higher ed cause, and career-related issues related to that, uh, we invite you to call to Agree, Disagree, Amplify, or, as always on this show, I'm interested in helping you with your work problem. If you have a, any kind of work-related problem, frankly, the harder the better. I do what I call workovers. You can call, uh, and those are all good reasons to call the phone number here at KALW and work with Marty Nemco and Barbara Nemco, of course, 415 841 Four one three four. That's four one five eight four one forty one thirty four. Is there anything more you'd like to say on this before I move to the issue of choosing a college? Just that there needs to be more time in an actual workplace. People need to to experience what it's like. Too many people choose a major and spend years studying before they really get into the nitty-gritty of the work and then find out that they don't like it and have to go back and choose something else. Couldn't agree more. You know, and the, and the, the academics, and I'm not, I'm also, I am not utterly careerist. I do not think it's a good idea for kids to take, uh, students to take college courses only uh, for to prepare for your engineering career, your nursing career, whatever. I do believe that one of the major purposes of higher education is to create citizenships and connoisseurships, connoisseurs of life. So I think people would be encouraged, uh, even in their, when they get counseling in high school, to be taking not only careerist courses, but courses up on citizenship, on art and in music, on theater, uh, etc. So... Um, you know, I think that's important. The colleges should not be too career. They should be more career oriented, but not all the way. All right, we've got plenty Agreed. of... Agreed. Yeah, Professor we... Joseph Macklis, I have to say, at Queens College, told us when we took our first music class, if you get an A in this course and you never listen to another symphony again, then you have failed. Mm -hmm. And if I fail you in this course and you develop a love mm -hmm. of music, you got an A+. Mm -hmm. And yeah. that's so true. Yeah. That's what it's there for. 
to give you enough understanding that you will appreciate and love it, and that will become something that adds to the richness of your life. Absolutely. Well, we've got calls on the line, so let's go right to the phones. Okay. The phone, uh, the, um, welcome to work with Marty Nemco and Barbara Nemco. What's on your mind? Hi. Hi. Um, there is an emphasis in um, the San Francisco Unified School District to teach writing mm-hmm. in all of the disciplines. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm wondering, in terms of uh, careers of the future, uh, wh- what do you think about uh, the need for people to know how to write? Let me say that something is data about that. claim supported with evidence, da-da-da-da. Right. I'm absolutely convinced that writing is critical for many jobs, but not as a writer. There's, you know, too many people like to write for a living. And so they like to opine, they like to sit in the comfort of their home and whatever. So being a writer, as somebody, I have written, I've written 3,600 articles and 12 books, including for Time, Newsweek, not Newsweek, that's a lie, Time, uh, the Washington Post, the Atlantic, etc. You get paid nothing. I could Not get, as a writer, just right, to I know, I know, right. know how to write, right. to be able, as I said, to state a claim, to support it with evidence. Yeah. Uh, to be able to uh, write clearly. Right. I just want your professional, uh, what shall I say, feedback on whether or not you think this is crucial to most of the careers, for example, tech. Yes, so like I said that was prefatory to say you can't make a living necessarily as a writer. But for many, not all, but many professional careers, in some tech jobs, writing is important. For example, to write documentation, to write reports, to even in customer service in tech, to be able to articulately write an email is of importance. Uh, and I do think that writing is also a, a manifestation. It's a proxy for thinking skills. You can't write well if you can't think well. So I'm a big fan of writing as a way of encouraging active learning f- merely for critical thinking and as well Use, useful in many careers. Barbara Nemco, what do you think? I think we try to teach writing across the curriculum because so many students don't write well, and if you are using it in the context of the subject they're studying, it makes it more real. It's a, a, an experience rather than writing an essay on some abstract topic that has no meaning for them. So it isn't necessarily to prepare them to write for that career, but we, we've always talked about every high school teacher should be teaching reading across the curriculum and writing across the curriculum. Okay, thank you both. You're welcome. Oh, you're welcome. Let's go back to the phones. Welcome to work with... Uh, no? Okay. Um, so, Barb, what I'd like to do before I let you go, I'll give you a choice. No, I should give you a choice. Um, I prepared a, a little um, a little mini-lecture on the art of choosing a college. We are now entering the time when students, whether it be graduate school or undergraduate, are, are making their selections as to where they're going to apply in September and October. Um, we're now in mid-August. Um, so I'd like to share that lecture. Now, if you feel you're not going to have that much to say about it and you want to get it off the phone, that's just fine. But if you'd like to stay online and listen and perhaps react, that's fine too. What's your, pres- what's your pleasure, Barbara? Um, I'll stay and see if I have anything to say. And if I don't, then I'll tell you I'm leaving. Fair enough. So... I have been disappointed by too many colleges' marketing machinations. Yeah, the following is kind of a parody, but at some colleges it's too close to the truth. 
I'm going to pretend I'm a, um, a, a, the trainer of the admissions counselors and tour guides, okay? And I'm, it's their, their training day. Welcome admissions counselors and tour guides. In just these few minutes, you're going to learn how to effectively sell Obfuscation University. Make sure you focus on the positive. Focus on the interesting. Focus on the unobjectionable. You know, like the campus legends, the awards we've gotten, that the professors got, the architecture. And tell about them in stories. People love stories. But if they ask about our graduation rate, give a short answer. For example, 60% graduate. You see, they rarely are going to ask whether that's in four years or not. Actually, it's, it's six years, right at the national average. That's an example of a core rule of influence. You want to give short answers to hard questions, long answers to easy questions. Like about our posh dorms or our fancy recreational sports facilities and our inspiring landscape. Inspiring, now that's a good word. That way, they'll come away from the tour or your phone call with them more positive because most of the time we spent talking about our good stuff. If they ask about our graduates' employment prospects, tout individuals who've done big things. The averages don't look so good. We'll give you a list of some of those individuals. The prospects rarely will, but if they do ask about our graduates' average salary, say something like, oh, it so varies with the major and the GPA, whether they did internships and so on, that reporting an average would be meaningless. Diffuse their worry, then, with a joke. For example, oh, I'm sure your child will make zillions. Then change the topic by saying that old statistic, that college grads earn a million dollars more. The prospects won't stop to think that the college-bound are brighter, more motivated, and more connected, so they'd earn much more than the non-college-bound even if they were locked in a closet for four years. They're even less likely to realize that the million-dollar statistic was obtained decades ago when a far lower percentage of high school graduates went to college. Then quickly pivot from career and talk about some fun stuff. People love to hear about the fun stuff. Talk about our sports teams, the extracurriculars, the concerts, the activism. These days they're really into activism. And when you're talking about academics, lead with some vague platitude about the commitment the university has to excellence in teaching. And you can bolster that by talking about our teaching award winners. We'll give you a list with a story about each of them. Then give them the impressive-sounding statistic that our faculty-student ratio is 18 to 1. Don't worry. They won't ask about the class size for the classes that undergraduates typically take, like Intro to Psych, which has 500 students, rather than Advanced Indo-European Linguistics, which has five. If they ask about whether the faculty focuses more on teaching or research, say, uh, researchers are in touch with the cutting edge, which means they can convey that to their students. Rarely will anyone even think of the many counters to that. For example, that expertise in some narrow research area in medieval literature or even molecular genetics doesn't translate to excellent undergraduate teaching, especially since faculty are recruited and promoted mainly on their research productivity, not their teaching. And the prospect certainly won't bring up any of that major national study, Academics Adrift, that found almost half of students made little or no freshman to senior growth in any of the subjects measured, writing, complex reasoning, nor critical thinking. If they ask about the faculty's ideological bias, again, be brief. For example, uh, we have a wide range of faculty. Then pivot away from that with a joke like, actually, we're a re-education camp. 
Then ask a question that changes the topic, maybe about some juicy campus trivia like, what famous person was said to have had their first kiss under this tree? Now, preempt their objection to our price tag by explaining that 70% of students get financial aid. In the unlikely event that they ask what percentage of that is loan, just say it varies widely with the family income and assets. And end with a platitude like, we are very aware that your investment in an education at Obfuscation University should pay off in learning, career, and pleasurable memories that will last a lifetime. The takeaway. Next to a home, a college education is the most expensive purchase most people ever make. And it takes some of the best years of one's life. Please, parents and students who are choosing a college or graduate school, please compare various institutions' answers to tough questions that they too rarely post prominently on their website or have their admissions, quote, counselors or tour guides volunteer. These questions, you might want to write these down. May I see the results of your latest student satisfaction survey and accreditation visiting team's report? For someone with our family's income and assets, how much will we likely have to come up with in cash and how much loan and what interest rate? And after the first year, are we guaranteed that you won't convert some of that cash to loan? What evidence do you have on your students' freshman to senior growth in writing, complex reasoning, critical thinking, and so on? Do most faculty lean left, right? What is your four-year graduation rate? What percentage of graduates who major in, and, and insert your prospective major, what percentage of graduates who major in that are making at least, say, $40,000 within six months of graduation? If you ask those questions, you will make a far wiser choice than do the vast majority of people. And that's my little mini lecture on choosing a college. Barbara Nemco, your reactions? I love it. Well, it's all true. Um, it's crazy that kids who do go to a four-year college are left with such a mountain of debt. Such that's a misnomer. Four years, the average student takes much more. Years, right. Right. And the if they graduate. Of, the mountain of debt is the one that you can never get rid of. You can't discharge. The higher ed lobby is so powerful, they convinced Congress to make student loan virtually the only loan that cannot be discharged in bankruptcy, no matter how poor you are, no matter how destitute. So we've created a generation of young adults who are looking at the prospect of maybe never being able to own their own home. Oh, not anymore. And if Elizabeth Warren, as I predict, gets, gets elected, she wants to forgive all that student loan, which has all kinds of negative side effects, because if you take away kids' skin in the game, they're going to be even less likely to work hard, more likely to cheat. But that's a well, whole other story. Me, when we went to college, college costs $25 a semester. We went to a state school, and it was... It didn't have anything. We took the bus to school, didn't have fancy dorms. We didn't live there. And so all of those costs were gone. And they didn't have all of these different departments of people who get paid huge amounts of money to train professors into this and that and the other uh, things that they're going to then evaluate them on. Um, non, 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 non-related to instruction things. Totally non-related to instruction. And, and beautiful, beautiful facilities on campus. So we're paying for the wrong things. And then we're owing money for decades 
trying to pay it back, and none of it makes any sense, well, and most of it is still unrelated to what you're going to do. Related to the skin in the game thing, however, while it was cheap, it was very difficult to get in. And mm-hmm. so that was a, that made sure that the people who got in were quite motivated and capable of doing well in school. But we now have that perfect storm. We have created most, 90 people don't realize that 90% of colleges are virtually open admission. Of course, Harvard and Stanford are not, and nor is Berkeley, uh, or even UC Davis isn't. But 90% of colleges are virtually open admission. And so if you make that free and you've got a group of people who are underprepared for college... You're creating a perfect storm where the taxpayer is going to be subsidizing people to have no skin in the game who are going to likely not be one of even the 60% who graduate, but really just leave college devastated with a destroyed self-esteem and not learning very much and not being very employable when they could have, for example, started a community college or an apprenticeship program and be much more likely to be both employable and have a self-esteem that's not going to make them want to vape all day. Do you buy that? I do. Right. Well, that's depressing. No. Okay, say something upbeat. Would you do me a favor, please? About yeah. education. Say something real. No BS. But something... And career... Because this show is about career. And even though this is the back-to-school edition, say something about the positive side of education in terms of career preparation. That there are, A, some fabulous post-secondary vocational technical schools that will really prepare you very well for a career. Those are community that, colleges, right, rather than the private, the private right. schools, right? Okay. I tend there to agree are, with that. That we are finally, after a 30 to 40-year uh, trend of not emphasizing the fact that everybody at some point is going to go to work, and we need to think about that at a younger age, we are now looking at the old, it's not quite the old school to career that we had in the 90s, but we are looking at various career areas, and students are getting to select career areas and get getting to take sequences of courses in those career areas so that they are getting a true taste of what these jobs will be like. We have at some of our high schools in Napa, at American Canyon High School, for example, we have a fabulous construction class. They're learning how to build tiny smart homes. So not just the smallness, but very high-tech homes. I, 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 while I'm seeing time running, I want to say something positive about, about higher ed in general. You know, while in net-net, there's a lot to be criticized. The, one of the beauties of large institutions is that you have tremendous choices of teachers. And there are some teachers who really are wonderful and care tremendously about students, notwithstanding the incentives to do research. There are also a richness of extracurricular you just can't get outside of a campus if you are, especially if you're tra- traditional age. You know, my best experiences in, in college were writing for the student newspaper and playing baseball on the baseball team. Um, th- more than most of my classes. And also to spend some time away from having to make, make money and earn money, but rather to be on the taking end and learning in a beautiful environment. College campuses are gorgeous places. They're in, they are inspiring places. And I also loved going to the games. I went to uh, my undergraduate college, had no football or anything like that. But when I went to Cal for my Ph.D., I would go to those football games, and it was literally just on a human level exciting. So I think it's fair to say that there are certainly advantages even to the traditional college education. 
Absolutely, but remember, you didn't have to pay $100,000 for the privilege of doing that when you went to college. No, they gave me a free ride at Berkeley. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Okay. Anyway, I'll let you go or... um, Yes, I'm leaving. You're leaving. Okay. All right. Bye. All right. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Uh, that was Dr. Barbara Nemco, Napa County Superintendent of Schools, my co-conspirator on the show. Um, I want to end with a little mini lecture. We've talked about, we've made the assumption that everybody that you should go to college. I want to make the case for, get this, dropping out of high school. I did well in school, and so I reaped some benefit, but I hated it. And if I could do life over again, I've said on this radio show before, I would drop out of high school. It made no sense to me that the best use of those robust years is to sit through and study four years of boring algebra, geometry, and calculus. And it turns out I was right. I've never used any of it, even though I have a PhD from Berkeley. It made no sense to me that the best use of those robust years is to sit through and study years of chemistry, physics, and molecular biology. And it turns out I was right. I've never used any of that. It made no sense to me that the best use of those robust years is to sit through and study four years of history. And I was right. I mean, the bumper sticker, those who ignore history are condemned to repeat it, is simplistic. It ignores the opportunity cost, that is, what I could have been doing. It made no sense to me that the best use of those robust years is to try to wade through a mountain of literature, from Shakespeare to Camus. I think I'm right. It made no sense to me that the best use of those robust years is to sit through and study four years of Spanish. Even though I got A's, I still speak a little better than restaurant Spanish. And regarding social life, if anything, the dysfunctional culture of high school hurt my social confidence. I should have dropped out and been an autodidact, learning and socializing on my own. Now, of course, most students should not drop out of high school. But more, more at least, should consider it, bright, especially bright self-starters who dislike school and are going through the motions, learning or cheating their way into good enough grades. Now, of course, you, it's not easy to make dropping out work. You, importantly, a parent or other mentor, or more than one mentor, are usually required to make dropping out work, helping to ensure that the teen who's out of school, that their life is superior to the student life in four years of uh, high school, in career preparation, in personal development, in social development, in citizenship, in wisdom, and fun. So within career preparation, the teen should volunteer or get paid to work in a series of workplaces, like a couple of months at each in a bookstore, a parent's workplace, at the elbow of a parent's friend who's successful, ethical, say, business owner. And while a certain amount of scut work may be required, the teen, depending upon his or her ability, should be encouraged to ask questions, request permission to sit in on meetings, tactfully offer suggestions and try out harder things like maybe make a proposal for streamlining a process, for finding new customers, whatever. And the teen should keep a journal to solidify their knowledge and for them to use in obtaining future higher-level jobs or if they then decide to go to college. That could be a wiser and more pleasant launchpad even for a high-level career. I just want to say something about personal development. Here I may seem contradictory. I do believe that reading and discussing the universals, love, greed, war, are crucial to becoming a thoughtful member of society. And that's what high school academics should consist heavily of. But in practice, too little time is spent on those in favor of inculcating little-used facts and concepts, and sometimes on ideological brainwashing. So our model high school dropout might read and discuss essays with a parent, friends, or in a reading group. So I need to stop there because the, the show is over. But uh, I wanted to make the case for everything from lots of school to dropping out of high school uh, and trying to argue for a reinvention of both. 
Um, that is work with Marty Nemco for this week. I want to thank my board operator, Joanne Marr, and of course, all of you for listening and calling in. Please join me again next Thursday at 7 p.m. You can call in for a workover. Plus, moving up, it's the American way. But should you aspire upward? And if so, how can you maximize your prospects? Until then, this is Marty Nemco for Barbara Nemco, reminding you that we find comfort among those who agree with us, growth among those who don't. 